If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it up and turn with me to the book of Colossians. <clears throat> if, you are, are, <clears throat> excuse me, if you are a guest this morning, uh, you'll want to know that we are working our way through the book of Colossians in a series that we have titled Unparalleled unparalleled. And uh, we now find ourselves in the beginning of the third chapter, and we would love to have you join us. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to follow along, you can find this reading on page 900 and I think it's 55 from memory uh, in the pew Bible that is provided for you uh, in the back of the pew there. Otherwise, you can look it up on your mobile device of choice. You can find it there as well. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. We'll be studying together the uh, first 11 verses this morning. The story is told that um, Ernest Hemingway uh, was having lunch at the Algonquin when he was there at, a, at the round table, this special round table, and he was surrounded by other writers. And while he was there, uh, he, he said to the other writers, he said to them that he could write a story in just using just six words. The other, the other writers, of course, balked at his proposition, and he said, well, uh, then each of you put $10 in the, in the center of the table. And if I'm able to do it, then I will take the pot. If not, then I will, then I will pay double what, what you're going to pay me. And so they did. They, put their, they all put their $10 into the center of the table. And as the story goes, then he took out a napkin and he wrote down six words and then began to pass the napkin around to each of the writers. The six words that he wrote down were these. For sale baby shoes never worn. For sale, baby shoes never worn. And then he collected his winnings. For the short story was complete. It had a beginning, it had a, men, a middle, and an end. Now, were you to leave here, uh, you would find that this is um, a, a type of writing called flash fiction. If you were also to go Google this, the, the accuracy of the story, there's quite a bit of debate as to whether this actually happened or not, whether Hemingway actually did it. But it is interesting because it, what it was forcing you to do is to try to tell the story in the least amount of words as possible. I was doing some training recently and I was given the cha this particular challenge to be able to say, if you were to talk about your life, the reason you exist, the purpose of your life, and if you were given just six words to describe it, what would you do? What would you say? How would you do it? And so then we were given time to work on the exercise in order for us to be able to sort of whittle down what the purpose of our life is, our life and ministry is. So mine turned out to be these six words. Help maximize your life for Jesus. Help maximize your life for Jesus. When I think about how I want to be spending my time, when I think about how I want to be using my energies, when I think about the, the focus of life for me, it's to be able to say, I want to, whether it's with my family, whether it's with my children, whether it's with the neighbors, whether it's here with you at church, no matter what it is, I want to help maximize your life for Jesus. That's what I want to be about. That's what I'm about. And Paul, today, in teaching the church in Colossae, the, the, the Colossians, about their life and about sort of honing in on the very significance and value of their identity in Christ. Now, as it turns out, as a result of last week's sermon and last week's teaching, there was a bit of ruffling of feathers that I created a bit of confusion and frustration on the, on the part of some. 
And, and recognizing that it's never in my intent, right? It's never my intent to cause confusion, rather to help bring clarity is my hope, you would hope. And yet at the same time, when we allow Jesus to be Jesus, and when we allow the gospel to be the gospel, sometimes it gets a little scary. It happens to break down some of our well-conceived boxes and challenges our thinking. Because what Paul was actually trying to teach the church in Colossae, and I think for us, he says that your, we have all of the fullness of the deity is in Christ in bodily form, and we have been brought into that fullness. We have a fullness of Christian experience that our standing before a holy and mighty God comes only in Christ and in Christ alone. It's not dependent upon my, what I do and what I don't do. It's not dependent upon my own record. It's dependent upon only the record of Jesus Christ. That's why I can stand holy in front of a holy God. Not because I'm holy, but because of Christ, I've been ushered into his righteousness, into his holiness. And so therefore, I can stand holy before God. Or if you like, what I said was my, our, our, our justification, that I'm justified before God, is not rested on our sanctification, how I actually do religious stuff. But rather... The reason I do all of these things, the reason I live these things out, the reason is based on my justification, my sanctification, my continuing to be like Jesus is based not in order to earn God's pleasure and to earn his favor. It is because I have already received his favor in Christ. And so therefore I live it out. This is a significant, this is, so, this is really significant because it's the foundation of Christian life. Because all of religion is do these things and God will accept you. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is Jesus has done this, and only when you accept what Jesus has done for you, then you will be accepted before God. And so therefore, live your life. But it's scary to be able to say, so nothing that I've done can earn me favor before God. My, because what happens is then Jesus just accepts you. You just accept Jesus. Well, the question that follows, does it not matter how I live? Does it not matter does it not matter that, you, Pastor, you're just telling people that they can just live however they want to if they just accept Jesus. Is that what you're telling them, Pastor? Or put another way, should we not expect the followers of Jesus to act in a particular way? Or another way, should not our faith in Jesus change our lives? The way in which we live? And the answer, of course, is Yes. Yes, 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 and yes. Why? Why should our relationship, our faith with Jesus change the way we live? Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's just pause there. The first reason, the primary reason why our actions, our life changes when we are following after Jesus, when we become a follower of Jesus, is because you're a new you. Because you become a new you. Because you're not the same person. Or as Paul says it, since you then have been raised with Christ. 
He says, you, you died to that particular way of life. You died to that old you. You now have a new identity. You now are a new person. You now are a new you. Because listen, every single one of us, all of us have to live out of a sense of identity. We all live out of a sense of self. That every single one of us at some, at some point, right, we stand up in the morning, we stand up, we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror and say, this is why I'm me. This is why I exist. This is, it's these things that say, that prove that I'm okay. It's these things that give me significance, value, and self-worth in, 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 in life, right? We all live out of a sense of identity, a sense of identity. And what Paul is trying to teach them, the Colossians, and what he's trying to teach us is this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your identity is Jesus. You are Christ. He says, you have been raised with Christ. You have been brought into the fullness of Christ. Your identity is with Jesus. And when you have been hidden, he says, you've been hidden with Christ in God. You are enveloped, as it were, into the very essence of the gospel, into the, the very person of Christ. He says, and when Christ, who is your life, appears. This is your identity. And you are to live out of this place. You are to live out of this relationship. That the thing that forms your significance, value, self-worth as a person, as an individual, is Christ. Because something is determining your significance, value, and self-worth. And he's saying, as a Christian... Your identity is in Jesus and it is in Christ alone. You're a new creation. You are in Christ. And so therefore, all of the privileges, all of the rights, all of the benefits of being a child of God are now upon you. And the promises and benefits and privileges of being a child of God ought to, ought to be the primary thing that determines how you feel about yourself. It ought to be the primary thing that determines how you view other people. It ought to be the primary thing that determines how you view your circumstances. The fact is that all of the promises and privileges that I enjoy as a child of God, that's the filter that I use to be able to look out at myself and other people and the circumstances that face me every day. That is, because why? Because that's my identity. Because that's who I am. We so often find ourselves judging Christ and God's faithfulness based on our circumstances. And he says, no, you've got it backwards. It is through Christ, it is because of Christ and his promises and privileges as a child that you view your circumstances, not the other way around. It is our identity in Christ. And when I fail to allow the rights and privileges and promises of being a child of God, to be the primary filter through which I view myself. The way I shape my view of myself is shaped. The way it shapes the view of other people and the way it view, shapes the view of the circumstances of my life. When I fail to do that, then I don't just have zero identity. No, you fill it in with something else. You default back to the way you once were. You default back to who you once were, the one, the person that died when you came to Christ. You go back to those places. So often we find ourselves going back to our, the places of difficulty and struggle in our lives and adopting them as identities. And so we, we find ourselves saying, because we were divorced or because we deal with uh, depression or because we wrestle with a struggle with our sexuality or because we're never married or because we're a single parent, then we, we say, the, look, those are all significant human experiences, but they're terrible identities. They're, none of them are identities. They're not who you are. 
work is a wonderful grace from God for you, for, for provision for your life and purpose and, and significance of, of work, which is good. We were made to do work. But it's not who you are. Family is a wonderful gift from God, but it doesn't define you, he says. No, for the Christian, you once were defined by all those things. There was a time when that's all you were defined by. You, you had nothing else, and so it was by power, and it was through money, and it was through status, and it was through relationships, and it was through all of these things, or lack thereof, that we would get up in the morning and say, it's because of this that I exist, or because of this, I don't deserve to exist. And he says, you died to all those things. You died to that way of thinking. That way of thinking is dead. You've been raised with Christ. He is your life. You are hidden with Christ in God. You see, this is who you are. This is your identity. You're a new you. You're a new creation. And since your life is now hidden in Christ, it must change the way you live because you're different, because you're not the same, because you're a different person. I cannot state this more clearly, and I'll state it one more time, and then we move on. What I, it is not live these things out and you get God. That is not Christianity. That's religion, but it's not Christianity. Act this way, and you get God. No, it is you get God through Christ and in Christ alone. That's the only way that you have a standing before God. And now, because you have a new identity, because you have this standing on firm foundation of Christ, now go live this way because you're different. You're a different person. This is the very essence of the Christian faith, friends. We must understand that now because we have a new you, that you can walk a new way. Now you can walk a new way. You don't walk a new way in order to become a new you. No, no, no. You become a new you in Christ. And then we walk in a new way. He says, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Let's just pause there. So then Paul goes on and he has a couple of lists, right? He begins to say, now there's a new way of walking. What we need to do is take off all of the things that are a part of our old life, our, our earthly way of doing things. We need to take those things off. We need to put those to, to death. And so then he starts to illustrate. These are two lists. They're not exhaustive lists, right? So he starts with a list that deals with sexual immorality and lust and uh, impurity. And then he goes on to talk about anger and rage and evil desires, Right or, not, or these, other, these other things, these couple of lists, as he goes on. Now, what he's, what he's trying to get at here, what we need in order for us to be able to understand this, it's not just, being, these are, it's not just saying, now, um, okay, you got Jesus, now go do, do all these things. Don't do these things. Put all those things to bed. We need to put all those things to bed, but we need to be able to do that in such a way that it actually changes us. Because that it doesn't turn us into just um, just Pharisees, because that's the danger that he's trying to offset with the false teachers. So what is he actually trying to do? What he's, he's trying to help us be able to change. How is it that we as Christians are able to change? It's not just behavior modification. 
It's not just a, a, a list of do's and don'ts, of, of rights and wrongs, but rather he's trying to get at something that goes far deeper. I was really helped with, and I think it's, it's the essence of it is really here we find in verse five. We find in verse five when he is actually talking about evil desires and idolatry. So I think the essence is there, and, and I hope that as we walk through this that it'll make sense to you. Because I was helped by, um, by Tim Keller and some of his writings on this particular uh, passage. And this is what he says. The word, evil desires, is an effort on the part of translators to get across the word epithemia, which literally means an epidesire or an overdesire, an inordinate desire, a magnified desire, an excessive desire. So he says, when you see the words evil desires, it's always translated in English as evil desires. And the word is, the Greek word is epithemia. That's always translated as evil desires. But the challenge for us is, when we read in English evil desires, then what we have a tendency to do is to be able to say, okay, so there's a list. That's the evil list, right? Here's the naughty list. Here's the list of all the things you don't do. And I desire, I have a normal desire for the things that are on the naughty list. And so therefore I can't be on, I, I got to stay away from the naughty list, right? And that's how we think. We kind of have a tendency. But he says to do that way, to think that way is to misunderstand what epithemia is, the Greek word. The Greek word actually means it is to, the, the issue is not a normal desire for evil things, but rather to understand epithemia, it's actually an over-desire. It's an extra desire. It's an epi-desire, he says, for something that is good. So we desire something that's good, but our desire is an over-desire. It's, it's an epi-desire. It's, it's something that, it, it's an addiction. It's something that, that takes hold of us. And then, in, and then it connects as you say, okay, well, so I have an over-desire for something that's good. Is that so bad? And the answer is yes, because then it's tied to the word idolatry. Because then what he says is here, he's talking about greed. And he says, what happens is, do you take money, which is a good thing. But when you have an over-desire for money, then it becomes a greed. And that becomes a God in your life. And that's what, that's what he's teasing out here. That's, that's what he's saying is happening. That the reason that we get angry, the reason that we become bitter, the reason that we have sinful lusts and sinful desires is because we have a, there's a good thing, but we have an over-desire for a good thing that turns into a God thing and ends, up taking, and ends up taking over our lives. We end up bowing down and worship. We end up finding our identity in all of these other things rather than in Christ, who is our life. This is the battle of the Christian walk. This is the journey. And the journey for the Christian is to be able to go and understand the desires of our hearts, not just look at the external things, because if we just look at the external things of rights and wrongs, then we'll never get to the bottom of it. All that is, is just a power play on the will in order to try to get us to behave in a particular way. But no, Christ says, no, it's gotta be at the very heart. Because why? Because I am your life. And so it is understanding how the human heart works. Because there's only two options for the Christian. Well, there's only two options for everybody. You either worship the uncreated God or you worship created things. That's it. Those are the two options for all humanity. You either worship the uncreated God and bow down to him and take your identity from him or you bow down to created things and take your significance and value and self-worth. There is no third alternate. We either worship God or created things. 
Paul David Tripp in his book uh, entitled How People Change illustrates this. I I found helpfully and I I hope that it's helpful for you as well. This is what he writes. It's always tempting to find fullness or identity in something other than Christ. Often I opt for peace and comfort rather than Jesus. And when I do, I can move in two opposite but equally sinful directions. If I'm irritated with you because you get in the way of the things that comfort me, I may lash out at you and keep you from taking what I think I need. Right? So, so if I want comfort, there's something that I think is going to bring me comfort. And if you're going to take it from me, then I lash out at you because I don't want you to take what's going to bring me comfort. Not good. And he says, but I can also fake godly behavior because... And, and, because I, and I can fake godly behavior to get the same result. I may choose to be nice in order to extract some kindness from you. On several occasions, I have an argument with my wife, knowing that a baseball game is going to be airing on TV soon. Watching a baseball game is a time of peace and comfort for me. I want that experience. In order to get it, I may apologize to my wife, even ask her forgiveness for the way that I sinned against her. From the outside, this may look godly, but on the inside, I'm simply faking godliness to get what I want. If I consciously live in light of the fact that I am full in Christ, I will ask for forgiveness whether or not I get to watch the game. The obvious way to determine if my actions were sincere is to look at my behavior when the game comes on and I'm interrupted again. If I become agitated, my confession and request for forgiveness were most likely a subtle way of manipulating my wife to get what I wanted. Paul says that we have been given the fullness in Christ. If I act on this truth, nothing can empty me of what is already mine. Baseball game or no baseball game, I can live peaceably with my wife and family. This simple illustration may not seem all too impressive, But if the blessings of Christ do not change us in the little moments like these, the chances that they will change us in the more difficult moments are slim. It is in the everyday details that the grace of Christ must be applied. Isn't that good? That's where I live my life. Probably where you live yours. It's applying what Christ has done for me and believing that I have all the fullness in him, whether or not I get to watch the baseball game or not, whether or not... And Paul says to the Colossians, put to death with the things that are, mortify the sinful nature, kill the flesh as it were, those desires. We need to put away these things. But if we are going to really put away these sinful desires that we see on the flesh, it means that we're going to have to dig down into our hearts and look at our motivations for why we do what we do and ask God to find our identity in Christ and in Christ alone. But there's more. It's not enough just to put to death our over-desires. They must be replaced. We need new settings. We need new settings. We have these default settings, and now we need, to, we need new settings to be put into place. Go back, back up at verse 1. I know it's going backwards, but just follow with me. I hope it helps. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, it's common for people to have a breakthrough in their life, oftentimes through counseling. 
where people will realize through, uh, through therapy or through counseling or through conversations with people that, that they have spent their life enslaved to their parents' expectations of them, that they didn't realize it, but all of their life has been filtered through the fact that they wanted to please their father. And so through this, the unlayering of all of life, all of a sudden they come to a moment of clarity, they come to a moment of breakthrough, realizing that they've, they've found freedom now from their father's expectations. Or, or some people have found themselves like, they, 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 they found themselves to be a bully. They didn't realize they were a bully. They thought they were just a take control type of person. But no, they had an, an over desire for control in other people's lives. And all, all of a sudden, this, this as if, as, as if the, uh, the lights just come on. As if, as if they're just able to see. And they say, oh my goodness, I've been enslaved to this. They have this breakthrough. It's amazing. And yet, they say, I'm not going to be a slave to that anymore. We go, yes, I'm not going to do that. It's not enough. Because we have to live out of some form of identity. It's not enough just to cast one off. It must be replaced. Or as the Scottish pastor and theologian put it this way, Thomas Chalmers, he put it this way. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. Every heart needs an object of beauty and joy. Every heart. The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered. You can conquer. You can conquer your enslavement to your father's expectations. You can do that. But its desire to have some object is unconquerable. Your heart has to have some object of beauty, some object of joy. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way for you to not give in to the default settings, the evil desires, the sinful lust, the anger, the rage, the bitterness, the only way for us not to fall into those default settings is to have new settings. And Paul says, here's what you need to do. There's something that you need to know. You need to set your mind, he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. Set your mind. There are certain things that you as a Christian must know and must renew in your mind that you are a sinner that your sin separates you from a holy God but that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you couldn't live in your place that Jesus Christ died on the cross and his punishment on the cross he bore all of the punishment that your sin and my sin deserves once and all once and for all for all of humanity that on the third day he rose again conquering sin and death and hell that Jesus ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty that he sent his spirit and the very power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within you that one day Jesus Christ will return and take you to be with him and one day he will make all things new. Christian, you must know this. You must have this cemented in your, in your mind and we come together to renew our minds in order that we might be reminded of what is right and what is true, what has been accomplished for you once and for all through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You must know it. Otherwise, if you don't know, then the worries of this world, then other people's approval, then your family relationships, then your parental expectations, then the world's emphasis on money and sex and beauty and power will woo you back into the default settings of our earthly nature, of our sinful way. If we don't know these things, then we will be drawn back into this world. We will be drawn back. 
and it will be the thing that drives you. It will be the thing in which you find your identity if it isn't in Christ and in Christ alone. We must know these things. We must know them. But it's not enough to know them. He says, set your mind on these things and set your heart on them. What we know with our mind must make the, must make the journey down to our hearts for that is how, that is where we find our source of significance and value and self-worth. Only when something that our mind has grasped captures our hearts, that it is that something that we will live out of, that we will be able to move away from the things that woo us and try to pull us back. And that is why we worship. That's why the significance of worship the significance of you coming here week in and week out is not so that we can say, look how many people come to our church or don't come to our church. It's so that you can come and together with God's people can be reminded of the things that are true and it can travel when you sing the words of the song. When truth is being sung, it's traveling from your head into your heart so that you can go out of this place and be able to say, now I want to live a life that is fueled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to live a life in alignment with him. This is why we gather together. This is why you spend time around the word of God individually on your own. Not so that you can check off a list. Now you can say, well, I did my Christian thing. I did my Christian duty today. I sat down and, and I, read, I read my Bible. No, 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 no. It's so that you can get to know Jesus, the God of the Bible. And so they can move not just for information in your head, but it can go into your heart. That's why you listen to certain songs on the radio. This is why you're in Christian relationships with one another so that you can tell one another of the faithfulness of God, of the glory of God, because I need you sometimes to have a faith that I don't have and sometimes you need to have you need me to have faith for you so that we can have faith together as we encourage one another on it needs to travel into our hearts in order that we might align our living with this one who is our identity who is our heart we must know that he says when Jesus when Christ who is your life appears you will be with him in glory you're in the story you're there me too. Well, this week I was reading a, a blog post from a young lady. I, I couldn't work it out. I don't know her. I don't know if she was in late high school or maybe early college. She was just sharing her story, her journey that she's been on. And it, it wasn't particularly well written, but that's not what drew me to it was the writing. It was the transparency and authenticity of the work. It was a story of her struggles over, these, over her life, but over these last months and weeks. She was a dancer, and she talked about, it was the, the blog post was a story of essentially the slow demise of her dance career, the slow demise and death of her dance career. It was, it was a story of the, really the slow demise and death of her identity. And she shared the story of how her dance career continued to wane because of injuries and because of difficulties and because of challenges until that one day when her mom called and said she was done and hung up the phone and then she lost, completely had a loss of self. She didn't know who she was. It was a story of her slipping into depression it's a story of her wrestling with self-hatred. It's a story of her hating her body because she felt like a shell of her former self. She writes, for as long as I remember, I've never felt worthy. 
I hated my physical appearance since probably around elementary school. My self-confidence plummeted when I stopped dancing. It was my exercise, and so I gained so much weight. I don't know why, but that fact was really bothering me the past few weeks. Before a concert last month, I straight up had a breakdown because none of my tops fit. About a week ago, I went clothing shopping and bought a single pair of pants because I could hardly look at myself in the mirror with the 800 things that other things I tried on, even though they fit. I'm not saying this for any reason except to describe the state that I've been in for the past month. It's been almost constant self-hatred and self-destruction. And then she went on to share that over the course of the last year, she's sort of had a rediscovery of her faith. And since January, has started to attend a church regularly. And God has been meeting with her. And then she writes, Satan doesn't want you to achieve what God has planned. He wants you to stray as far from Christ as possible. And sometimes he does a darn good job of it. Sometimes the devil wins. At least that's what I've noticed these past couple of weeks in my own life. He made me hate every ounce of my body. He made me turn to things that I thought I was done with and not regret a single thing about it. He made me feel lost and worthless, and I'm tired of it. I am by no means a perfect Christian, but I want to be. I want to give God the love he has for me. He sent his son to die for me. He made me in his image, and in him I can achieve anything. We all can, and that's amazing to me. I'm tired of living in fear and in comfort. Nothing incredible comes out of being comfortable. I want to live my life fully. I want to do the thing, things God wants me to do, and I want to help other people do the same. He is so good, and I am so grateful for the people in my life that remind me of that. For the first time, I can't wait for the future. I can't wait to see what I will achieve and where, God, my, where my heart will take me. For the first time in a while, I'm ready and excited for what is to come, the good and the bad, because as long as I'm on God's side, it's going to be good. That's abiding in Christ, my friends. As long as I'm abiding in Christ, as long as my identity is with him, then whatever's ahead, I can be excited for and know that as long as I'm with him, that it's going to be good. This is what it is to follow after Christ through the realities of all of our lives because our identity is found in him. May we be those who continue to grow in our identity in Christ who is our life. Let us pray. Father, we so easily fall back into our default settings of our own hearts, the things that once defined our lives, the things that once defined our realities, and now it is... It is only by your grace that we are able to understand all the more what it means to follow in you and walk in you. I pray that by your grace and for your glory that you will help us take another step in that journey today of recognizing of our, our identity in you and living out of that place in order that we might align ourselves with what you're calling us to be. We come in dependence upon you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.